morning and welcome to Rising. We have a perfectly adequate show for you today <laughs> and we're going to get right to it. Take it away, Brianna. All right. Well, the news nobody can ignore is that Senator Mitch McConnell uh, had another one of those glitches at the podium. Now he did not respond to repeated questions during another alarming freezing episode caught on camera, marking the second time in just over a month he suffered such an episode. Let's take a look. Running for re-election in 2026. Oh. Okay. Did you hear the question, Senator? Running for re-election in 2026? All right, I'm sorry, you all, we're going to need a minute. Senator. Spokesperson for the 81-year-old Senate Minority Leader told CNN's Manu Raju, quote, Leader McConnell felt momentarily lightheaded and paused during his press conference today. The spokesperson added that McConnell feels fine. President Biden briefly addressed the incident yesterday. Take a look at that. By the way, I, uh, I, I just heard literally coming out, and uh, Mitch is a friend, as you know, not a joke. We, we always, I know people don't believe that the case, but we have disagreements politically, but he's a good friend. And so I'm going to try to get in touch with him uh, later this afternoon. I don't know enough to know. Thank you. Are you running? I'm not sure. Okay. All right. Now, it's pretty ironic that Mitch McConnell had that moment while he was being asked if he plans to run again for another term. Right. When is he up? Um, I mean, the answer to that question should be self-evident based on the know. last time this <laughs> happened and the fact that he was unable to sure. answer that question because of some obviously health-related glitch. This is not that he paused, it's not that he lost his train of thought, you know, there but for the grace of God go I on all of that, we all have our senior moments, but this seems to be more than that. Yeah. I saw some people pointing out be up again. that if this, is if this has not happened twice on camera, what is the likelihood that this happens with some frequency off camera and we're just getting a glimpse into what seems to be a steady, steady state for him at this point? So obviously he cannot run for re-election in 2026. Um, if he were to retire, resign. Before that, Kentucky has a Democratic governor, so that's just not going to happen. It's the same, you know. It's the, the same the Feinstein raw political calculus. situation. Um, you got to keep him in. He's not going to retire. He needs, uh, but he can retire as Senate uh, minority leader, as head of the Republican Party in, in the Senate, um, which is something that needs to happen. I mean, how does the Republican Party make its case against these elderly Democrats running our government, um, including Joe Biden, but also Feinstein, um, the health problems in general that, you know, John Fetterman, despite not being of advanced age, includes him in that category when this is the Republican Senate minority leader? It's not—I don't want to be cruel about it. Um, no, it's not—it's yeah. not— but he, there's no, it, like, there's, there's just no way he can continue to serve in a leadership uh, position unless, unless this is, I mean, obviously we need to know more if this is like his medication is out of whack or something and it, you know, it can be fixed and then he'll be 
cogent, but um, it's that's going to be hard to believe, and it would be on him and his team to demonstrate that that's the case. From an optics perspective, it's a really bad look for Republicans who are understandably trying to lean into the, the broadly thing. felt perception that Biden is too old to run. When you cut from the Mitch McConnell clip to Joe Biden talking about the Mitch McConnell clip, Joe Biden looks downright spry. Yes, that's a, that's a good point. <laughs> you know, yeah. so I don't know. I, for, I, I understand that there's other concerns beyond the uh, general election prospects here, but this does seem like a situation that needs to get out of con uh, under control if it means moving him to the basement a la Joe Biden in 2020, yeah. um, getting him out of the public sphere. But this, at a certain point, it does, it, it borders on cruelty to have him out in front of the public having these moments. And Mitch McConnell is, uh, th there's no way to overstate how important he is to the Republican to the project of electing Republicans. Mm. He controls the purse strings for so much money. He gets to choose which candidates get um, have access to his war chest. Mm. So to have that guy not you know, full, it's, a, it's a stressful, it's strenuous to not have someone who is fully psychologically, emotionally, physically capable of doing an extremely important and difficult demanding job yeah. is, um, is, just, is just the party crippling itself. Yeah. Utterly crippling itself. Yeah. I, 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 I don't, I, yeah. I saw some people, obviously, look, there, there are some people who make kind of mean, more mean-spirited remarks about this. I found this to be just really, it's almost difficult to watch. But I did see um, some leftists making, I think, a better point out of all of this. Nina Turner tweeted, reminding people that Mitch McConnell has access to world-class health care provided by the government, while many of his constituents don't due to policies he championed and blocked. If you're going to try to politicize a moment like this, I do think that's the way to do it. Make the case that people like him, who are benefiting enormously from government health care, have obstructed those same benefits for the general public, and that him moving on could also clear space for politicians who might actually be more geared toward fighting for the people instead of raking in campaign donations to a lot the way that you've uh, described and being I mean, beholden he to various healthcare because uh, he works for the government. Yeah, right. I mean, people have access to healthcare through their job. It's not. That's not such a. I don't see the hypocrisy of that. He has health care because that's his not hypocrisy. job is that he works for It's that for the we, we designed a society the way that we want to design society. Well, and I if don't you know wanna... He designed employer-based health care, but no. I, it's a bad system that needs reform. I agree with that. Okay. Well, yesterday, Jake Tapper pressed White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre about recent polling showing three in four Americans believe President Biden is too old for, uh, for four more years. Let's watch that. But I'm talking about his age and his stamina and his ability to do the job, and you're talking about the record. And I understand why you'd yeah. rather talk about the record, yeah. but I'm talking about what Americans see when they turn on the TV and they see, you know, Joe Biden's been in politics since before, literally since okay. before you were born. Okay. And like that he's, he's right. well, well, let's talk, aged. No, well, let's talk about this. As we all do. Let's talk about this. And you all talked about this back when we were, uh, when we were, when we were uh, marking the one year uh, anniversary, right, the, uh, of, of the war in Ukraine, the unprovoked war by Russia. Mm. What did the president do? He went to Kiev. And he was there with the, with the alarms blaring in the back. And people were so impressed that he was able to be there and look strong and represent, uh, represent the, Amer the American people. Immediately when we went to that clip, you could tell from her body language that she was very defensive. Yeah. And all of those little yep, yep, yep quips throughout um, 
were also seem like seem to be an indicator that she has gotten this question a lot. She's uncomfortable answering this question, that it's a tough issue, that it's that it's getting to folks in the Biden White House, that age is such an issue. And I think part of why it's probably bristling to her and others in uh, the, the White House is that it's not just some Republican attack. It's a view that is shared by the bulk of Democratic Party voters. Everyone thinks that Joe Biden is too old to run. And it's not just too old, I would put out, I would point out. It's that he seems to be not fit enough, that his age is coming in, in between him and his ability to do the job in a way that certain other old candidates, including Donald Trump, don't seem to be having that exact same problem. They're yeah. gonna have to deal with this in a way that, that is less defensive and that assures people that he's up for the job as opposed to saying, well, he was standing strong in Ukraine. He was able to stand up. He was able to fly to another country and stand as his own two feet for four hours. Therefore, you shouldn't have any concerns about his cognitive wellness. Frankly, it's going to be a gift to Joe Biden's reelection to have a top Republican functioning at the level that Mitch McConnell appears to be functioning. It will blunt some of that criticism, I would predict, yeah. which is why we just we can't have it. Sorry, we can't have it. There has so what to are you be. recommending? Because to your they point, they need to have him retire as um, as as minority leader. They can't have him retire from the Senate because they can't. I mean, this, let's just be real with ourselves. Yeah, it's not going to happen. But uh, there are other uh, there are other senators who want the job. Um, John Thune is one. I think Rick Scott might be one. Uh, there's a there's a number of Republicans who are interested in that position. Um, it's 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 a transition that's going to have to happen. And it might as well happen. It, it, the you know, sooner, the sooner, the better for not allowing one of the one of the best arguments against reelecting Joe Biden from the Republican standpoint. For, for a pitch that, as you as you're noting, da, is resonating with with people of all political stripes, is that he's just too old for this job. But then it becomes, well, they're all too old for this job, which is the case. But it, it's yeah. more visible when you have someone like Speaker McConnell. And I don't, you know, I don't again, I don't say that with any malice. Uh, it's just, it's, it's the reality that people need to retire. People need to retire. Yeah, there, there is an argument that we need to reform the rules that make it so that there's such political consequences for someone getting sick and ailing. I mean, we could live in a society that said, okay, like I understand the political reality and wanting to get your political edge and advantage, but let's let Feinstein, let's let Feinstein yeah. stand down and actually allow the Democrats to replace her in the Judiciary Committee. Let's let Mitch yeah. McConnell take the, like, are, are we really in a place where we think that our government is served by people staying in despite their health, significant health yeah. problems um, that are obviously interfering with their ability to govern? I mean, this is why, I mean, something like term limits are something I think we both like, at least in an abstract sense, um, in, in, a, in, a, in the reality of a political system where power is so entrenched by incumbents in both parties and the democratic process has been somewhat short-circuited by the primary process and redistricting and everything we have going on, uh, where, it's, where it's not the case that you can just toss someone when they're no longer fit to do the job in, in like a non-partisan or political sense then term limits are kind of an important thing. Yeah. Well, we will continue to update you on Mitch McConnell's health, and we'll have more rising right after this. You loot, we shoot. That was the stark warning Florida Governor Ron DeSantis issued to potential looters yesterday in the aftermath of Hurricane Adelia. Let's watch.
and we are not going to tolerate any looting in the aftermath of a natural disaster. I mean, it's just ridiculous that you would try to do something like that on the heels of an almost Category 4 hurricane hitting this community. I'd also just remind potential looters that people, you never know what you're walking into. People have a right to defend their property. Uh, this part of Florida, you got a lot of advocates and some proponents of the Second Amendment. And I've seen signs in different people's yards in the past after these disasters. And I would say it's probably here. You loot, we shoot. You never know what's behind that door. If you go break into somebody's house and you're trying to loot, uh, these are people that are going to be able to defend themselves and their families. Now, the damage from Adalia is projected to cost between 18 to $20 billion per AccuWeather. Here at Rising, we haven't been able to verify any reports of looting, um, except maybe in the form of price gouging. One user on Twitter posted evidence of one Orlando gas station charging nearly $9 a gallon. Inflating prices during a natural disaster is illegal in the state of Florida. Um, the political divide on this particular comment from Ron DeSantis is as obvious as the nose on my face. Obviously, there are people who are concerned that what uh, DeSantis has said is giving folks permission to murder people on the basis of uh, an activity which history has shown is incredibly subjective. I think we have some photos of what happened in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, where um, photographs of white people who seem to be getting food from stores were described as cu a couple finding supplies or trying to survive and foraging, whereas black people—here we have the two, the two um, photographs—doing uh, the same thing were described as looting. Given how subjective it is, when you're looking at people trying to survive in an emergency situation as evidenced by what we saw out of Hurricane Katrina, Katrina is it prudent? to tell people, to tell the public that they should feel entitled to shoot folks based on their subjective belief of what's going on. I mean, A, nothing DeSantis said was racial or racially coded. He didn't bring race into it at all. I didn't say and, it was. Right, but you're alluding to the... I, I I'm saying that there's a subjective, there's a subjective a, belief as to, a view as to whether or not people are looting or not based on whatever characteristics. he didn't encourage anyone to shoot anyone. He just discouraged people from looting and said that, yes, some people are. I mean, that, that's... What wasn't what he said substantially, like totally true? All of it, that people are armed and people do shoot back sometimes, and that's this is a situation to avoid by not by not looting. I mean, again, there's we haven't seen evidence that people are looting. I don't know that looting no, post natural disaster is very is very um, common. So I don't know that there's all that much to be alarmed with, but I don't know that these were particularly incendiary comments if they're being described as such. There's a, I think there's a world where one could say, I want people to be very careful as you try, if you feel like you have to go and forge food somewhere, if you and if you think you're going to loot, you know this is a standard ground state and people might shoot you, I want you to be safe, please don't, don't do that. Mm -hmm. And I would also warn folks to be very careful about you know, shooting people who you don't know what they're doing. Remember, this is an emergency situation and we're a community. Let's all try to get through this together. But he didn't say that. He said, you loot, we shoot. And I don't think it's really subjective that he seemed to be advocating for people's rights to shoot at looters. And here's the concern. Although it's framed as you can stand your ground in your home and protect your home, which I think is uncontroversial, what we have seen in reality is instances like Kyle Rittenhouse 
where this perception that any given person has the right to arm themselves and deputize themselves vigilante style to defend public property or private property that does not belong to them. Remember, Kyle Rittenhouse went into—he did not live near where the protests were happening. He went into the city and articulated a desire to defend, defend the businesses there that were not his businesses and had no relation to him, and ended up killing two human beings in, the, in that context. Now, he was acquitted, acquitted of his crimes, but that doesn't bring those two human souls who are dead in the ground. Uh, back to life. And one has to wonder what kind of rhetoric would encourage people from not doing the kind of thing that would end up in the loss of human life. I don't think DeSantis was encouraging rhetoric that would result in the loss of human life. You think he was? Yeah. Well, I mean, he, and he was quoting signs that, I mean, these signs exist anyway, right? This is very different than... Um, like, like this is a, this is a. He, he was reading signs that he said he's he's seen around and warning people about that. Yeah. Well, I don't know what else to say about it. I, I. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it seems to me that the role of a governor and a leader should be trying to prevent loss of life from people starving. But that is what trying he's to trying to prevent to do. loss of life from people shooting, trying to discourage any kind of behavior that would jeopardize the integrity of the community and people's lives. And and I, you know, I I don't think that this is it. I don't think that this is it. And it's a real shame, you know, speaking to the reality that you live in a state where there are stand your ground laws is a very different thing from articulating a moral value that it is bad when you shoot people. And here's I'm going to say something ex extremely radical. That is it is worse to shoot someone stealing food than it is to steal food. I'm going to say something even more radical than that. It is worse to shoot someone stealing a TV or a non-essential item, just genuinely looting and taking advantage of a tragedy. It is worse to shoot that person than it is to steal a TV. And I am pained by the reality that that is, in fact, a radical statement and that in the United States of America, people genuinely feel, many people genuinely feel, that someone else's bad behavior justifies what, in, in every kind of religious tradition I know, is the worst behavior that a person can engage in, which is taking another person's life. Yeah, that is a radical state. I mean, I don't think most people recognize that you are not forced to be the victim of crimes. You don't need to sit idly by and be robbed and abused and so on. Um, that it, like, maybe it, I mean, <laughs> maybe you'd feel differently if your TV was being stolen, but the people who have that experience don't need to just put up with it and I mean it's not it's not society at all if nothing is done to prevent people's like possess valuable possess I, I agree that you you know you don't shoot someone for stealing like a cube of cheese from you or something but you have but you're allowed to. you have that's, every right that's to That's the whole point of some of these stand the ground laws that it's not I mean, they, about they the, don't give you that right to stand well, the ground you have, laws. Well so if someone's coming onto your property you have the right to shoot them that's the whole point. Like that, that's literally the whole point. That it there's that it, it erases the sense of proportionality Not if that usually exists in a, in a kind of a self-defense claim. That that is exactly why those laws are considered to be so pernicious by so many criminal justice advocates. To the extent that we all we understand there's a kind of natural right to self-defense, the law, common law, includes a kind of proportionality, a reasonable self-defense to get yourself safe. But these stand the ground, your ground laws erase that sense of proportionality. They were, those laws were a reaction a to instances where people 
defending themselves or others in situations that most people think are reasonable were nevertheless prosecuted. And so there needed to be additional clarity that you don't have to s sit idly by and be the victim of a crime or watch other people be the victim of a crime. Yes, there needs to be some proportionate uh, proportionality about it. But if this is different in other countries, so be it. In our country, you, you, don't, you, you, you do not have to just watch yourself become a victim. If you are someone in uh, Florida, I hope that you stay safe. We have seen the recent instances of insufficient emergency um, response money being given to communities who have been engaging, uh, who have been victims of natural disasters. We just saw this in Maui. Um, I hope that people are able to find food and resources to keep themselves secure. If you do wander out into the streets, um, I hope you keep yourself safe because you do live in a state where there are, there's a lot of broad latitude um, for people to shoot you without there being any um, criminal penalty for doing so, um, and that's all one can hope for, is that everyone stay safe in, the, in this, in the context of this tragedy. More Rising for you right after this. We have some new polling numbers from the 2024 Democratic presidential primary contest. Joe Biden is still leading with 60 percent of the vote, while Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has enjoyed small gains on the presidential race. He's got 19 percent of the vote. Marianne Williamson has hit double digits. She is at 10 percent. Now, Kennedy recently sat with Fox News' Jesse Waters in Central Park, where he railed on mainstream media for not allowing him to speak directly to their audiences. CNN, MSNBC, did they invite you on? No. Why not? You would have to ask them. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like you'd be a natural fit over there. What do you think's changed? CNN and MSNBC have become, you know, openly partisan and uh, very, very much aligned with the uh, Democratic National Committee. And, um, you know, they share the same uh, sort of anger at my candidacy, and they don't—they'll uh, they'll do stories about me, but they won't allow me to talk directly to their audience. Speaking of CNN, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries took to the network yesterday where he insisted voters know Joe Biden is a good and decent man, and he has nothing to worry about going into 2024. Are you confident? when you look at what the Justice Department has done, when you look at the investigations into Hunter Biden that the Republicans have pursued up to this point, that there hasn't been any wrongdoing, everything's been about board. Yes, I'm extremely uh, confident. The American people know fundamentally that Joe Biden is a good and decent man uh, who's dedicated his life to public service uh, and will continue to serve the people honorably uh, and admirably. On the other hand, you've got people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, and George Santos and others who are running the show uh, amongst the House Republican majority. It's an extreme group of people uh, who aren't really trying to improve the lives of the American people. As Democrats, we're going to continue to put people over politics uh, and to focus on lowering costs, better paying jobs, safer communities, growing the economy for the middle class and delivering. That will be a clear contrast that will be available to us to present to the American people in November of 2024. Does that ring true to you? A man couldn't miss the point more. Who does he think he's convincing with this? Does he think that there are working class and poor Americans that are watching this program that said, well, you know, cost of living has gone up exponentially over the last 20 years. Uh, inflation is still making the price of groceries in the store uh, 
difficult for me to, to feed my family. Just as uh, George Santos, the leader of the Republican Party, wanted. <laughs> <laughs> like the, 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 the cost of education is skyrocketing. The cost of transportation is skyrocketing. Um, but Hakeem Jeffries got on TV and told me that Joe Biden was a good person. So all is fine yeah. in the world. That's, that seems designed to push back on, on the corruption and the Hunter Biden accusations. I, I guess that's how they're trying to deflect from that. No, he's just a great father. Best father. America's father, really. I don't, I don't <laughs> Sounds I don't like you're slipping it. into your Trump impression a little bit there. Uh, he's the best father. <laughs> every many people are saying, such a good father. It's the first time hearing about it. Anyway. Yeah. He also really misses the point about why people find the, you know, extreme right faction of the party to be inspiring. I think a lot of Republicans, they look at what, let's say, the priorities of the Freedom Caucus are, and they don't necessarily even agree with those priorities. Because there's poor and working class Republicans, too, who don't exactly think that, you know, disbanding the FBI is going to put food in their stomach. Mm -hmm. However, what they do see is that there is a diversity of opinion among the Republican Party and a faction that is willing to fight ostensibly for them, at least in theory, well, for, for them. You're kind for of something. saying, say what you will about the tenets of National Socialism, but at least it's an ethos. <laughs> Is that what you're doing? <laughs> yes, except for that. I think that's um, yeah. Let's, yeah. let's I, go. Go ahead. Well, I was going to go back. If you want to say more on this, go ahead, because I want to go back to RFK Jr. Sure. You were talking about... Um, you know why he? We're, we're, ta we're just, we've been discussing him a little bit less in maybe the last I don't know two weeks or something. Um, which yeah, you, you can have a news cycle. You can you know fade from the news cycle a little bit. There's no reason to think he might not come back. I do think um, his candidacy over time was drawing more and more, and continues to draw more and more um, support from right-wing people. Obviously, you know, that's not entirely true, and, and he's running as a Democrat, and actually a lot of Democrats are turned, have been turned off by Joe Biden's policies, particularly on foreign policy and COVID, where RFK Jr. is, you know, most at odds with what mainstream Democrats want today. Mm -hmm. um, however, because of those, those are now kind of right-wing things, he had a lot of right-wing interest. Um, I, and I think some of that right-wing interest is now, in, now that we've had the debates, there's more focus uh, among right-wing people. Well, what does DeSantis think about this? What does Vivek Ramaswamy think about this? What do the other candidates think about this? And maybe that's why he's faded a little bit. Although, uh, you know, Fox News is still having him on. He just did that interview that we played some of with Jesse Waters, and um, I, I, he could very much have a, you know, a, a yeah, media I think, resurgence. I think two things are happening here. One is what you've just pointed out, which is that now that there's real conservatives in the race, there's no yeah. need, or there's, they've always been in the race, but now that there are They're media events that are highlighting the words, thoughts, and feelings, and policies of actual conservatives in the GOP race, there's less of a need to cater to or really uh, platform RFK Jr. from the conservative. But also, I do think that, you know, some of the substantive gaffes, let's call them, that he uh, had at the end of last month, um, you can say that they were in bad faith, but I do think they ultimately deemed him. Hmm. I think a lot of this organic real support that he did have on the left uh, for his anti-war views uh, was really diminished by his stance on Israel-Palestine. Um, I, I don't see him on my leftist timeline at all anymore. I don't think that there's anybody who has much confidence in him because uh, Palestinian mm. rights are such a foundational issue to the left. And then back uh, uh, on the right, I, I do think that the, the, the liberal press was enjoying using him as a kind of a whipping boy to make a—to uh, grandstand about how terrible um, certain conservative beliefs were that they thought were being funneled through and platformed by RFK Jr. And now that there are so many other conservatives saying other things that are considered to be— um, 
wrong and out of step with public opinion. Democrats can just talk about what Vivek Ramaswamy or um, uh, uh, DeSantis or somebody like that has to say. They don't need him anymore to make the argument that Republicans. He still seems are bad. very popular, I should say, among um, some of my people, among many libertarians. So I don't mm -hmm. know if there's an opening for him there. If he's so committed to um, to you know remaining a Democrat and seeing yeah. this through, but it and looks to me like to, there's an opening for to, him. To there. this particular interview, I mean, many many liberals have been arguing that the only reason that the right has been interested in RFK Jr. is because since he's running as a Democrat, they are just elevating him as a knock against Joe Biden. Um, and, you know, I don't think that that's necessarily, I don't think it's fair to use that argument to discount what I think is legitimate organic interest in RFK Jr. However, I do think that that is obviously happening. Do I think that Jesse Waters is ever going to vote for someone like RFK Jr., genuinely supportive of someone like RFK Jr.? Not really. It obviously advantages conservatives for there to be more division in, sure. the, in the Democratic primary. I support that, by the way, because I think there should be a real primary. But I do think that's part of what's happening when you see them kind of scoop him back up out of irrelevance. Sure, although I don't want to underemphasize that, you know, he is— Taking the fight to Biden on on two or three issues again, in particular the COVID stuff and the Ukraine stuff, where you know conservatives are all about what he's saying and are cheering him and you know wish you know want those policies enacted and wish Dem, you know wish the Democratic administration would be you know would be less inclined to require vaccinations and lockdowns and everything else um, and and the funding of Ukraine. So he you know he is it's not just. Like they're they're not they're not just platforming and celebrating and putting any Democrat on a pedestal because you know suck at Joe Biden. They're doing this to ah. someone who is she, who who is most vocal on things that that conservatives and independents and libertarians and contrarians and, and dissident Democrats think should be heard. I, I, well, look, I'll say this: they had uh, Newsom on. Newsom yeah. is not some counter-establishment rabble-rouser, but the idea that, that Gavin Newsom would maybe get into the race was enough to get him a platform on Fox News. They've, you know, they've had Marianne Williamson on, who doesn't, isn't a big kind of COVID, yeah. anti-lockdown sort of a personality. Well, they, they've had them on, and they should. That's a good, you know. No, you, of but, course they should, but the, the argument that they are platforming RFK Jr. kind of largely because they just believe in what mm -hmm. he stands for, I, you know, I'm not saying that they don't. There isn't that overlap of ideology. There obviously is, but I also do think it's a lot about wanting to stick it to the Democrats. And again, I don't have a problem with that at all. I'm so glad that they have an, an opportunity to go on Fox News. I just think that it's a little bit of a mix. If, if, if these people were not, um, if they, I think they were, if they were independent candidates, if they were somehow not advantageous to the Republican effort of splitting the primary vote and getting digs on Joe Biden, I, I just don't think there would be as much of, a, of an opportunity, of, of an incentive, rather, to go ahead and do it. Yeah, well, um, I, I think that's all for us on this topic. Uh, we'll have more Rising Free right after this. Do you want to be mad at something new? Does Joe Biden want to limit Americans to drinking just two beers a week? Well, I've got a story for you. Here's White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre on that very subject. President Biden want to limit Americans to two beers a week. I, I, where is this coming from? Dr. George Koop, who is the uh, director of the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, says the U.S. may soon follow Canada and recommend just two beers a week. I, 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 I will leave it to the experts. I'm just not going to comment on that. Things only escalated from there. Here's Senator Ted Cruz on Newsmax last night. 
And now these idiots have come out and said, drink two beers a week. That's their guideline. Well, I've got to tell you, if they want us to drink two beers a week, frankly, they can kiss my ass. No, okay. Um. <laughs> Ted Cruz isn't the only one in a twist over these rumors. The alcohol industry already going on the offensive. One spokesperson for the Distilled Spirits Council wrote, it is extremely alarming, inappropriate for a federal official to predetermine the outcome of the dietary guidelines and suggest changing decades of precedent without the benefit of the scientific review to support such a sweeping move. Now, in the words of Karine Jean-Pierre, where is this coming from? Well, director of the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, George Koob, told the Daily Mail last week he was open to lowering the recommended amount of drinks per week, uh, closer to the Canadian guidelines, which recommend two drinks per week. Currently, U.S. guidelines say men should limit their alcohol consumption to 15 weekly drinks and women to 10 drinks. So you seem pretty <laughs> upset that this is being talked about. I, I agree. No, this Joe is my Biden's. suggestion. I suggested this topic. I think it's hilarious. I mean, this is not like being made up. Uh, the the health, the federal health guidance people are considering moving in a Canadian direction and changing what the, yes, it's just a recommendation. No one has to follow it. Um, of course, I'm a little wary of voluntary health recommendations in the post-COVID landscape where nothing, where it was, it was, yeah, we're just recommending things, but then actually all local officials are going to operate off of it because the CDC does have a lot of ridiculous guidelines that generally people don't follow. Um, you know, you're, you have to have a, you're supposed to have a well-done steak. You're not supposed to have eggs benedict. Um, you're supposed to microwave your prosciutto. There's lots of, um, you know, silly health things yeah. that people don't follow. Authoritarianism, authoritarian health guidelines. Just last week, um, I had a bunch of birthdays and I was about to drink my 11th drink. And out of nowhere, a Fed came and swiped my dry gin martini out of my hand and said, Brianna, absolutely not. That would go against federal guidelines. Thou shalt not sip. And it was a uh, real right. buzzkill at this party, I gotta say. I know that neither of us <laughs> let a uh, federal official get in the way of our uh, merrymaking in the drinking department, uh, which is the way it should be. But, um, but, but okay, the concern is because, again, in a post-COVID landscape, people take or the, the, the recommenders of health policy are more emboldened to subtly force things on us. And if it remains voluntary, that's Look, fine. I agree. We should get rid of all health guidelines whatsoever. Pregnant women, go for it. Ten beers. 20 beers. Maybe you should have all the tuna. tuna the health officials sushi. advise that anyone, that anyone <laughs> capable, anyone who is in the age bracket where it's possible that they could become pregnant should not drink at all. Yeah. That includes yourself, Brian. Yeah, uh, barely. Here's, here's what and I. That's, and that's crazy. Nobody follows it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Nobody follows but, it. Nobody right, follows it. We should go back to that. We should go back to, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely flossing yeah. twice an hour. So we have Robbie, to break the segment so I can floss again. So, as Robbie, the if, health if experts literally advise. nobody follows, follows it because they are truly guidelines, then what do you make of uh, Ted Cruz's choice to really treat us to an extremely masculine display of sipping beer on air to prove that nobody's going to put baby in a corner? Okay. If at all going to remain guidelines, it's fine. 
whether you wear a mask or not, is that going to stay a guideline? It better stay a guideline, not a you have to do this, or vaccines, or closing your school, or restaurant, or whatever it is. Don't yeah. tell me they haven't, You're that right that remained concerned. all guidelines. You're right to be concerned. I'm going home uh, to Cleveland for the holiday weekend, and we normally barbecue. My mom makes the best baked beans on the planet. But ever since the guidelines around gas stoves, there has just been a gaping hole in her kitchen. And I honestly don't understand how we're going to make these beans. This is gaslighting. You're acting, <laughs> you're acting like they're not actively considering. It's illegal. Joe they're Biden moving. made gaslighting uh, all gas uh, illegal. Honestly, with this Green New Deal transition. Gaslighting was illegal. Can you easier even? to sit in this chair right now. That's what I have to say about that. <laughs> Man. All right, well, Ted Cruz is getting dragged on the internet because in the longer clip, which you definitely should go watch, um, the, the newscaster says, well, I have a non-alcoholic beer here that I'm going to drink with you, buddy, buddy boo, sir. I can't drink on air. And then Ted Cruz goes, well, rest assured, my beer has alcohol in it for sure. And then the newscaster goes, well, uh, after after work, for sure, for sure, for sure, mine's going to have alcohol in it, too. And it's like, yeah, bro, we got you. You're, you're a real man. <laughs> Better not have been a uh, Bud Light. Light. I, no, I, I was Ted Cruz, glad to see they were not Ted drinking Cruz, Bud Light. Ted Cruz, of course, made a big show of saying, I'm glad you're not drinking Bud Light. Of course. And, the guy, and then he says, I'm drinking a local Texas beer and did the plug for yeah, it. And he, did all, he, he hit every note. It was pitch perfect. All right. <laughs> all right. I thought this was a fun one. I love this story. I think it's hilarious. They uh, can <laughs> pry my, I don't drink beer, as we all know, but you can, you can uh, pry my Aperol spritz <laughs> from my cold, dead hands, Dr. Fauci. I mean, the fact that also this is kind of coming off of modeling Canada's guidelines. So uh, this was a story back in January uh, when I think Canada changed its guidelines. Is, 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 is it authoritarian, uh, an authoritarian amount on the loose since January when Canada uh, advised people uh, not to have more than two drinks a month, so, uh, a week? We, you know, we could talk about the actual science of this. I'm reading sure. a report from my colleague at Reason Magazine, Eric Bame, who says setting strict rules about alcohol consumption also requires ignoring evidence that actually drinking might be good for you if done in moderation. <laughs> Study published in June by the medical journal BMC Medicine compares drinkers and non-drinkers and found that infrequent light or moderate drinkers were at a lower risk of mortality from all causes when compared to lifelong teetotalers. Yeah, I mean, now, heavy drinking has a I, I higher think, risk of dying from cancer, I think that's true. But that's what the advice is, to be a light or moderate drinker. It's not a, two it's not a, a week, prohibition. Two drinks a week is very light. <laughs> okay. Very, I, I, we've hung out before. I, you, you don't, you don't, don't say that. No, but if I'm going to sit here and, I, I mean... I mean, yes, I had two, I went out to dinner last night and had two drinks last right. night. But I also, like, I, I'm not arguing against it. I also know that I do things that are contributing to bad health outcomes all the time. I, I do think that there's a way that we, we, we have a bad, we're very bad at assessing what our actual risk profile is for various activities. It's like people being very afraid of flying, not realizing the enormous risk of getting into a car every day. Um, people sure. uh, ride that. scooters without helmets, and any ER nurse will tell you that like they don't touch a scooter because okay. of how many traumas they see uh, coming through every day from that exact reason. Um, you know, so I, I do appreciate that there are people who are willing to like wave the flag every now and again and say, a reminder, these aren't the best 
activities, like these are activities that are strongly correlated to short, uh, shorter mortality, et cetera. I like being warned. And then I can make my own decision about whether or not I'd rather have that 11th uh, martini uh, during my week. That is all fine as long as it is truly voluntary. <laughs> so let's keep it there on all the health front. And then I will have nothing to complain about. And all I'll right. be happy as a clam. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm for that. At the second, the second Joe Biden tries yeah. to rip that gin bottle out of my He's hand. coming for I you because God, as Robbie. a person in an age range <laughs> with the capacity for being a birthing person oh to use God. all the right, uh, this vocabulary is being forced on me as well. Oh, it's being Biden's going to arrest me if I don't, uh, if I don't say it. He, Robbie voluntarily just said birthing person. <laughs> well, I'm just trying to avoid the gulag. Look, I'm going to be in those birthing stirrups uh, with sure. a cocktail in my hand saying, I'll push when I darn well please. <laughs> All right, well, this has gone totally <laughs> off the rails. More rising right after this. It's my right. <laughs> <laughs>
Oliver Anthony's actually cr actual critique was how the establishment of both parties seemed to try to weaponize it against each other without recognizing that he was making a criticism of everybody, all the elites in the political top. He came out after the GOP debate and criticized the GOP debate, the Fox News debate hosts, for choosing to integrate his song into the very first question, tweeting, it was about you. I was calling out you. And it seems odd for Joe Rogan, and I, I haven't, I confess I didn't listen to the entire conversation, but it feels odd for Joe Rogan, at least in the context of that clip, to be saying it's, we, it's liberals who misinterpreted the clip. It's the establishment that misinterpreted the clip. And if all of the bad responses to Oliver Anthony, which I agree there were on both sides of the aisle, Rain Wilson's criticism that it's good to, to, to have a song like this, but you should be punching up and not punching down at the least of these, is actually an important and correct critique. I mean, you can punch it, whoever he wants to punch it. Look, I, I understand that, um, you know, people who, like, uh, uh, SNAP, food welfare benefits are not, like, the major reason our government spends too much money. Um, it's the broader entitlement system that people, that, <laughs> that not just overweight people or not just you know, desperately poor people take advantage of, but everyone takes advantage of. It's our spending on all sorts of things. So you can't, you can't actually, um, the fantasy that we could just control spending by getting rid of, um, uh, of, uh, of, of uh, food aid is not accurate. So I think I agree with you. Um, I mean, but it was a, yeah. the broader, I mean, to, to the extent I could discern a broader political message, it was he feels overtaxed, right? He was mad. He was not mad just at the 1%. He was mad specifically at D.C. policymakers um, who have a tax and spend attitude about other people's budgets and bottom lines. And that's it, a message well, I the, can get behind. Well, the argument that he was making was about that his dollar isn't going far enough. He's not able to purchase the kinds of house, the kind of food, the kind of lifestyle. I mean, he didn't name yeah. insurance or things like that. But he was making a, a, I think there is a line about my dollar doesn't go far enough, my dollar doesn't stretch very yeah. far. That is the fundamental critique. And yes, taxes are a part of it. Obviously, if you don't have very much money, the idea that some of it is taxed is going to hurt you very a, a lot. But the fundamental issue is, why isn't his dollar going very far? Why haven't because, his wages gone up? Because Why is the cost is, of living so high? Yeah, because it's, like, it's very difficult to build more houses because government rules have made it impractical. And it's difficult to import Let's more say food that's true. and Should more his wages be up? and more... Let's say that's true, because what we know to be a fact... <laughs> What we know to be true is that wages have stagnated. What we know to be true is that the minimum, true. it 100% is true. All right, if you say so. If the, what we know for a fact is that the minimum wage hasn't been raised since well, 2009. Well, the minimum wage doesn't, most people make more, I mean, the minimum wage is different in, We're most talking people make about more than that people. anyway. We're talking about West Virginia, where the minimum wage is the federal minimum wage because it's a conservative state where they don't raise the minimum wage. I mean, minimum you can wage. raise the minimum wage, and then people whose labor is not worth that amount of money will just lose their jobs. Okay, so... That's, I'm not arguing with that, you that again. Most people, including most conservatives, in, as we saw as evidenced by the success of a ballot measure in Florida, a state that well, voted for— They don't for, understand Economics 101 either. <laughs> all right. So the poor people are stupid and don't realize that they and don't, are, are wrong to want their wages to go up. I understand that's a perspective. They're just ignorant, and they're voting against their interests. However, what poor people have said and working-class people have said is that they want their wages to go up. And they want it to go up in the exact same way it's gone up in all of American history since the implementation of the 
the minimum wage until it was stalled in 2009 artificially. So apparently there was cataclysmic horror from the time the minimum wage was implemented in 1940s or what I mean, often the minimum wage has been, too, has been too low to have any, because it's, it's too low to have an effect because people are all so being paid more all, all, that, I, so all I know not. is this, Robbie. People sit around saying about yesteryear was so great. The 60s and 50s were so I don't so sit great. around saying that. People overly romanticized the past, which where they right. had far less access yes. to goods and services not than you, we do Robbie, today. Not you, Robbie. Just everybody well, right, else. That's, well, that's, uh, that's a flawed and fantastical okay. way of thinking. Things I, were not great or better before. I don't think, I think that's true. I think that obviously. People were poorer. People were much poorer. People had fewer cars on average. They had smaller homes on average. There, this fantasy that it was all better then, it's not true. It's just substantially not true. In the 1950s, following the war, the government decided to implement policies that markedly, dramatically caused a spike in, in home ownership among American families. The ability for people to start to send their kids to college at increased rates. We had free public colleges and universities at a higher percentage, and people were able to graduate from college without debt. And the gap between what the rich and the poor were making was so much smaller. And now we have had unprecedented subsidies of all those things, and as a result, they're wildly out of—they're they're not affordable to, to the— like, like in a directly correlative way with how much money the government has funneled into them. As I was saying, the gap between the rich and the poor, the CEO pay and worker pay used to be no one cares around about that. No one cares. Around uh, 30 to 1. So and now it's over 300 to 1. Uh, I think I recently heard it said it was more like 20 to 1 back then and closer to 400 to 1 now. And it's not magic that that magic money didn't just come out of the sky and enrich CEOs and the very, very wealthy. It came because American laborers are incredibly productive. Productivity has been increasing steadily and consistently because of the value, the integrity, the hard work. And, and, and the intelligence of the American workforce. And despite working so hard, as many people who are watching this experience in their own lives, they seem to never be able to get ahead. 60% of Americans are working paycheck to paycheck. And they look at a from a policy perspective of what changed between then and now. Back in the 50s and 60s, the rich paid much more into taxes, and they, people felt like they got more out of the benefit of their bargain. Many people in these social democratic countries in Europe, they are taxed at a high rate, but when they're asked about what, how they feel about those taxes, they're like, it's good because I feel like I'm getting something out of it. But that's specifically what Oliver Anthony type people don't want, is more of their income tax. No, I'm, I'm trying to make exactly not that point, Robbie. What I'm saying is, of course you're mad about taxes if you don't feel like it's being spent well. But the people in all of these social democratic countries in Europe, this is literally the point I'm trying to make, despite being taxed at much higher rates than Americans, have a much better satisfaction in what their government is doing with their tax dollars because... And this is the point I was about to get to. They have free health care all the time, no matter what. If they lapse payments, there's none of this premiums, there's none of the deductible, there's none of that, nothing. You break your leg, you get cancer, you go to the hospital, it's paid for. They have free education for their kids. There's not a such thing as graduating with student debt. They have some deeply subsidized housing so that everybody in the country lives in high-quality Government subsidized that's house, not housing. True. That's not true. And they don't have these problems with violence. Everyone lives in great. Crime. Their houses are smaller than ours on average. So some they have less heating. <laughs> they have like it's not this fantasy that it's just better everywhere else is not true. In the UK, the average home is smaller than in the US. Who cares how small the home is? Well, I mean, that's, People are homeless these, in America. They live in substandard housing just because you can throw up some McMansion in the middle of nowhere that some people, but most people, cannot afford. Your square footage, people you live, can afford it. There are plenty of places you people can afford. People love their quality of life in Europe because you live in densely populated areas where you can get to work and go to grocery shopping and do things by foot or on a bicycle, which is also, gotta say, good for the environment. Liberals love that. Liberals want to live in tiny little. 
little personal uh, shelving unit or something that's all that's all you have and you you walk everywhere and you but people working people don't like they don't want that they don't want to be a single person in a pod what are you talking about what you're saying that working people would rather not be living would be living in a big shambles shack substandard housing shambles, than to shack, have a substandard. small that, that's the reality that we live it's in, Robbie. not the Robbie. reality. People can't afford homes. No one in America can no afford homes. No one in America homes. can afford homes. Yes. That's not true. We're, that's, that's just not true. We're living in a housing... Do you think there's not a housing crisis? Do you think that... The housing crisis is government-caused. Is gov is government that's, that's not the Legalize work. Legalize building. I, I'm not just... I, and we can I, have more I housing. I literally opened this whole segment of conversation by saying, let's give that a given. All right. So what are you arguing against? You're just sitting here arguing that people shouldn't have more wages, that everything that exists in America is just the way it is and how it has to be, Dude, despite there being obvious more. historical precedent for things being run differently for the benefit of the American people. And here's the core truth of what's wrong with that one line, just that one line from that Oliver Anthony thing. He's playing into a trope that was used to crumble all of the benefits and the advantages of, that we had in the 1950s and 60s after the labor movement. Communists and socialists and labor activists worked hard so that we could have a five-day work week, so we could get away, get rid of child labor, so that we could have a minimum wage, so that we could have OSHA protections in the workplace, so that when your boss's machine cuts your arm off, you're not unemployed for the rest of your life, so that your grandmother doesn't die in the street of old age because she can't work anymore, and now we have Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. They worked and strove so that we I could mean, have all of those things. things that are and, the, and, the, and the reason that we we started having those, uh, those benefits stripped away from us after all that the American people worked to have that for ourselves is because politicians realized that if you could argue that some poor fat person somewhere was exploiting the system, that it was better to get rid of the whole system in the first place. And what is tragic to me is that Oliver, Oliver Anthony tapped into something real and it made a great song that tapped into something really real. And that one line demonstrated how easily that argument can be corrupted into focusing the energy on the least of these in a way that strips all of those right. advantages from so many people instead of Focusing on the very top. Rain Wilson was well, right about we have, that. We have some agreement. And a millionaire Joe Rogan chuckling on a show about how Rain Wilson is also wealthy completely misses the point. We have some agreement. I don't think that um, that that the pro it's not substantially um, poor or obese people on welfare that are like sapping our society of its of the resources or its vital or whatever. I agree with you on that line, but we have. Fundamental dis disagreements on what the policies should be, and those come out in our discussions. As always, we'll have more rising right after this. Former Fox News host Tucker Carlson again suggesting that he expects Donald Trump to be assassinated. Let's watch. Are they going to let Trump be president? No, of course. I mean, look, if, you know, they protested him, they called him names. He won anyway. They impeached him twice on ridiculous pretenses. They fabricated a lot about what happened on January 6th in order to impeach him again. It didn't work. He came back. Then they indicted him. It didn't work. He became more popular. Then they indicted him three more times. And every single time his popularity rose. So if you begin with criticism, then you go to protest, then you go to impeachment. Now you go to indictment and none of them work. What's next? I mean, let, you know, graph it out, man. We're speeding toward assassination, obviously. And no one will say that, but I don't I don't know how you can't reach that conclusion. You know what I mean? Like they have decided permanent Washington. Both parties have decided 
that there's something about Trump that's that's so threatening to them they just can't have him. Okay, this is bonkers. I flagged this immediately after uh, Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson did that sit down, that counter programming to the GOP debate. And the first exchange of questions that went on for an uncomfortably long period of time was a series of questions about Jeffrey Epstein, which Tucker Carlson said he was asking, you know, do you believe that he killed himself? He says, I'm asking these questions, Donald Trump, because I think that he was killed because of his politics, because of what he could reveal mm. about all these important people in the world. And I think that you might also have a target on your back. I think we have a bit of that clip. Let's watch it. Do you think it's possible that Epstein was killed? Oh, sure, his? it's possible. I, I mean, I don't really believe, I think he probably uh, committed suicide. He had a life with, you know, beautiful homes and beautiful everything. And he, uh, all of a sudden he's incarcerated and not doing very well. I would say that he did, but, there are those people, there are many people, I think you're one of them, right? But a lot of people think that he, uh, he was killed. He knew a lot on a lot of people. He was killed. You I think, think so? I think the, more, the closer you look, I'm not a conspiracy person at all. I believe everything I hear. Uh, but yeah, the, the closer you look into it, I mean, the Attorney General of the United States, your Attorney General yeah. clearly lied about the Epstein Death. Yeah, and he was, why? He was uh, certainly it wasn't well done. They had no cameras, they had no anything, everybody was sleeping, and you know, there, the, a case could be made. Look, I'm not gonna get involved in it, but I can tell you, a case could be made either way, but uh, it certainly wasn't the most well-run place. So, so the reason I'm asking you is, I'm looking at the trajectory since 2015 when you got into politics, yeah. you know, for real, and then won. Uh, there, it started with protests against you, massive protests, right. organized protests by the left, and then it, move to impeachment twice, right. and now indictment. I mean, the next stage is, is violence. Is, are you worried that they're gonna try and kill you? Why wouldn't they try and kill you, honestly? Uh, they're savage animals. They are people that are sick, really sick. Okay, so why wouldn't they try to kill you? Why wouldn't somebody try to kill you? A bunch of questions about why wouldn't someone try to kill you? And now doubling down on this line of con this line of inquiry with his other host saying, I think they're gonna kill him. I think I'm gonna kill him. This feels like, look, I'm no big fan of Donald Trump, but this makes me uncomfortable. This feels good kind of, dare I say it, stochastic terrorism. But Tucker <laughs> Carlson is bringing up, trying to incept into everybody's minds the idea of assassinating I, Donald Trump. I think he's suggesting, and you know, you can agree or disagree with this, that, um, I mean, Donald Trump obviously melted the brains of a lot of people to thinking that he's you know, the great Satan. And there has been an escalation in, obviously, you're well within your rights to protest him. You're well within your rights to think that the conduct he uh, engaged in is worthy of impeachment or, or indictment, conviction, et cetera. But it is an unprecedented level of opposition to this man and his rule. And, uh, and Tucker suggesting what where what more do you escalate to? Now, I don't actually think there are plots to kill Donald Trump, and it is reckless to suggest otherwise. It is reckless to but. suggest. It is reckless to suggest. I, when, last time we brought this up on the show, I pointed out that the media, the liberal media went crazy when Hillary Clinton suggested that Barack Obama might be assassinated, and that's why she didn't want to drop out of the 2008 mm -hmm. primary prematurely. Because 
folks understood that there is a, a way that you can kind of encourage behavior by talking. That's what st stochastic I mean, terrorism is. I don't think is encouraging is. people to assassinate Donald Trump. No, but there's a, I, mean, I don't think that Hillary Clinton was literally encouraging people to assassinate Barack Obama either. But it was the understanding of the public was, why would you even manifest, why would you even say out loud, why would you put in people's minds the idea of assassinating someone who, in, in, in Barack Obama's case, who was already being targeted because of the historical nature of his candidacy Mm -hmm. from a racial perspective. And Donald Trump, because as Tucker points out, he has crossed so many lines in the establishment and hates him for all of these other kinds of reasons. So I don't know. I I felt also, like he seemed uncomfortable. Also, like, the, the assassinate Trump, again, this would be coming from Democratic, from the Democratic, the, the Democrats are the ones trying to take out Trump. Um, Democrats are not the, are not like vigilantes right now in our current like political understanding. The Democrats are the ones who want to follow rules and experts and establishment and mainstream to it to the end of time. So they're not going to assassinate Donald Trump. They're going to subject him to bureaucratic processes until he until it weighs until it drags him into the ocean. That is their modus operandi. But it's I, not I, I don't like think the like vigilante's going to come and take him out is like a right-wing fantasy of how right-wing people take but care of things. But he's a right-wing person and, and well, but he's not suggesting right-wing people are going to take out. I, no. I I disagree. So we we both know that out of the Dominion lawsuit deposition, uh, sorry, uh, uh, um, uh, disclosures, rather. We know that Tucker Carlson said he, quote, hates Trump passionately. I hate him passionately. I mean, he said and that so, about in that moment. I don't know if that's a... How many people did you once hate passionately that now you're besties with, Robbie? I mean, I've certainly said, I've certainly expressed unkind sentiments about people in the heat of the moment after a particularly rough day where I don't There is exactly it. one person I can think of that I've used that sort of language with who I now like a great deal, and that is a political commentator, one of Hillary Men, Peter Dow, who was one of the worst people against the left back in 2016, but subsequently realized his politics were not where it was at, changed his mind, and has been a strident advocate of Bernie Sanders in 2020 and since then. I can't think of anybody else, and because he substantively changed, I now have all these, yeah. this warmth and affection for him. Generally speaking, that email was not that old, first of all. And there's nothing I, to evidence that he has changed his I position think he was on very, that. Well, he was, he was very, he was supportive or warm toward Trump or a lot of Trump policies before. I think he was, I, I don't know. I, I think he was policies. deeply, hold on. I think he was deeply frustrated with the, th the things Trump said and did in the, in the election vicinity that harmed Trump and his ideas and the conservative movement. And that was extremely frustrating for um, for people who actually care about the future of the Republican Party and conservative ideas. Okay, well, to watch Trump's Trump just embarrassing himself and everyone else and just putting himself in, in like a future unwinnable position and putting the entire movement in a future cool. unwinnable position. Well, Trump's position. still doing all of those things. He's still election denial, doing the election denialism. He's doing it on Tucker's show with no pushback. But what we know from those same Dominion disclosures is that Tucker Carlson, despite having that private position about Donald Trump, understood that it was good for business to be friendly with Trump. And so he, in fact, castigated other employees of Fox News for saying anything critical of Donald mm -hmm. Trump, even though he shared their underlying view that he hated him passionately. So now, I, I, and all of this is in the background of my head as I'm watching Tucker and Trump sit across from each other. T Trump, say what you want about him. He's a very savvy media figure. He knows what Tucker Carlson said about him. He knows. And he is 
a vain guy who does not like to be talked down to. And so I, I felt like there was tension between them during that interview. Uh, he opened, uh, Trump opened with saying something a little bit shady about how, oh yeah, Fox News is bad. You used to have this great, great popular show and now you're here stuck doing this with me on Twitter. And he kind of cleaned it up a little bit, but there, there was definitely tension between the two at the, at the top of this interview. And immediately after that, Tucker Carlson started talking about, don't you think someone's going to kill you? Don't you think someone's going to kill you? And now he's still taking on this line of questioning. So it's it's not clear to me what he wants the outcome to be here. Does he think there's a legitimate threat against the president? In which case, no, he's, he's a provocative host president? and he enjoys touching things, uh, subjects for of discussion that other people don't want to do. And he's creating content. That's what I think he's doing. But later in the interview on the Adam Carolla show, Carlson made the case that CNN anchors are the mouthpieces for intelligence agencies. Let's watch. The intel agencies have a big effect on what is broadcast on television and what you see on Facebook and Google as well. I mean, they're all up and down Facebook and Google, as I'm sure you know. And, um, you know, there are a lot of anchors who, including people I know well and have worked with, at different networks, I'm thinking of one in particular, a national security reporter, who was just a mouthpiece for the Pentagon and the CIA and is knowingly telling lies on their behalf. That's very, very common, very common. And I can think of a number of people at CNN who I know for a fact are doing that exact thing. And so, I mean, they're reading government propaganda from the intel agencies knowingly. And I'm sure they've got some internal rationale that allows them to get up in the morning and face themselves despite having done something that dishonest. But I'm just telling you, bottom line, I know that is a, that is true. I'm not speculating at all. Yeah, fact check, that is all true in uh, my perspective. Uh, we've seen the influence of the intelligence community on the discourse on social media, and then also just in the discourse in the actual media that all their experts are intelligence officials. The people who staff panels on CNN and MSNBC are increasingly um, national law enforcement advisors, national security perspective people, and that that is the, you know, the, the, the intensely anti-Russia or, you know, uh, Cold War mentality that is now so at home on mainstream news is uh, just worth denouncing. At yeah, all and, and the fact that the intelligence agencies, the deep state, as it were, so entrenched in uh, corporate media, it speaks to the power, their power, right? And historic assassinations, I'm sorry, have been tied to those in leadership who are willing to really challenge the core of that power. People like Martin Luther King, people like are arguably the Kennedys. That is the argument that RFK Jr. has been making this entire time. Not just being kind of a rabble rouser and saying, oh, I hate Republicans gets you killed, but saying, we're going to withdraw from Vietnam. We're going to disempower uh, the uh, intelligence agencies. That's what gets you a target arguably on your back. Obviously, they're not exactly disclosing their role right. in these kinds of um, uh, assassinations and encounters. But like, I, I I don't, I'm not sure that we can credibly make an argument that Donald Trump has exactly gone that far. I, I will say that he obviously has changed the discourse and helped to move the Republican Party from the hawkishness that um, typified it before mm -hmm. the, the Trump era. Uh, but the, but Donald there are limits to the extent to which well, he's so, been really to challenge the, the oh, there the massive limits. Donald Trump is the is the best thing for the intelligent for the deep state or whatever you want to call it because though he rails against it, he took no steps to exactly. dismantle it. He's a, he's a he's opposition to it, but it's a controlled opposition exactly. because that's why he's safe. not because he's controlled, <laughs> but because he's not actually going to follow yeah. through on so any that, of it. That's why I think he's safe. Um, Despite what Tucker Carlson might be, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Despite all of his prognostications, was that Tucker up on the grassy knoll? <laughs>
no, it's just Tucker. It was he, Ted Cruz. He paid the guys to stay. <laughs> no, I'm just. This is a joke, obviously. Um, but stay safe, Donald Trump. Stay safe. Uh, stay I, safe, I, bestie. <laughs> we'll have a rising for you right after this. The left-wing lunatics are trying very hard to bring back COVID lockdowns and mandates with all of their sudden fear-mongering about the new variants that are coming. Gee whiz, you know what else is coming? An election. They want to restart the COVID hysteria so they can justify more lockdowns, more censorship, more illegal drop boxes, more mail-in ballots, and trillions of dollars in payoffs to their political allies heading into the 2024 election. Does that sound familiar? These are bad people. These are sick people we're dealing with. That was former President Trump in an ad released by his presidential campaign. He went on to warn the, quote, COVID tyrants that they will not comply. The release of the ad comes just days after President Joe Biden said the White House would request additional money from Congress to fund the next round of COVID-19 vaccines. On Tuesday, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said, we know that vaccinations are the safest protection against the illness. There will be an updated vaccine September, mid-September, I believe. So uh, we know that, as you all know, vaccinations against COVID-19 remains the safest protection for avoiding hospitalization, long-term health outcomes, and death, which is why we are, we are going to be encouraging uh, Americans to stay up to date on their vaccines. Meanwhile, MSNBC host Mehdi Hassan spent a segment of his show talking about the COVID school closures and an, quote, inevitable future pandemic. Let's listen to that. Because the myths about children and COVID, that kids aren't really harmed by it, that school closures were a massive and avoidable mistake, that they caused learning loss and mental health issues, those myths, and they are myths, dangerous myths, have endured for so long, become so ingrained, so pervasive, that they're not just something Fox viewers believe. I'm sure many of you watching at home have sadly come to accept many of these myths as true. So we need to reassert what the actual truth of the matter is, especially if we are to be prepared for the next pandemic when it inevitably comes, and especially if we are to protect and not abandon our kids right now as they return to school. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention reports that 26 states across the country have seen a, quote, substantial increase in people being hospitalized with COVID. So um, I guess we'll start with Mehdi Hassan and circle back. Um, I watched some of this big segment he did on how school closures are great, and I guess we should do them again. And I just don't know how you, one squares that attitude with um, that, that it was very important and we had to do it to save people's lives, and we should have done it more, frankly, because a lot of people still did die. With the just reality, um, I mean, we heard from uh, an expert on what Sweden did differently yesterday. And it's not just Sweden. It's, it's like virtually all European countries um, had fewer school shutdowns than our blue states. Uh, that's true of France. It's true of Norway. It's true of, I mean, I haven't looked at literally every single country in Europe. But broadly speaking, they did try to keep, um, they, they kept schools open more than, um, more than our blue states. So I don't know how, and, and we still, we had abominable COVID results. But you can't say we didn't we didn't do some of the man some of the mandates and lockdowns hard enough when peer countries did them less so and had better results. If you were to steal man Mehdi Hassan's argument, I suspect it wouldn't sound like lockdowns uh, school closures were great and we should do them again. So what did he actually argue in the segment? He argued that it was necessary uh, to prevent that. He argued that children. He argued that a lot of children died, and we should have done more of them to prevent those deaths of children. Obviously, some children did die of COVID. The age skew of COVID means that um, 
older people are by far, like, exponentially more at risk. Um, it is true that I, I think deaths among children from COVID in the U.S. were in the were in the hundreds, uh, not thousands, but hundreds, which is very sad because children don't often um, die. So it's it's definitely very bad. Don't get me wrong; I'm not going like lightly on it. But you know, whatever's going on there, what is the ever the underlying um, bad health? Uh, I mean, I'm sure you would say it has to do with our healthcare system being bad and the funding of the healthcare system, healthcare not being of access um, to people. But it it it's hard for me, even though Mehdi Hassan and people like him will pinpoint that we didn't take COVID seriously enough when we took it. We, we were more strident in our in in the restrictions on people's behavior than peer countries that had so, better results. So I just I really want to if we're gonna I think we should just be be accurate about what Mehdi was arguing. Specifically, he was arguing that the learning loss has been overstated. He, he I think, made an argument about, uh, to the extent that there are psychological negatives from being in the home or not in school, mm -hmm. that having been made a, an orphan or losing one of your parents because of COVID also has obviously deep psychological effects uh, on a child, um, more worse psychological effects than having to do school on Zoom or what have you. And my understanding was that he was making some cost-benefit uh, analysis arguments about not denying the negative impact of some of the COVID um, interventions, but saying that some of what was avoided was worth the cost and that people are doing different mm -hmm. kinds of cost-benefit analyses. Um, even the guests that we had uh, talking about the way that Sweden handled things so differently was very open to the idea that there are all kinds of factors at play, including the different fundamental baseline kind of health of Swedes as compared to Americans, not having as robust social safety net and mental and, um, uh, healthcare systems to support people. He said that people could social distance more voluntarily in Sweden because they had uh, more autonomy to do so, basically, perhaps more favorable labor standards and, and such. And so it wasn't an argument that we should do absolutely nothing, but the argument he was making was that people were able to do things voluntary and voluntarily in Sweden um, that also helped to suppress the spread of COVID. On the, on the negative, on the learning loss front, look, I know some people, some, I guess, you know, supporters of the mitigation efforts that were undertaken think the learning loss has been overstated. I am certainly open to the argument that it's overstated. Um, you know, people, I mean, there's some learning loss when kids get summer vacation, right, yeah. every year. Um, I, I don't, I, there have been studies coming out that suggest a significant degree of learning loss. Of course, there are studies pointing everything in every direction. I think it's going to take more time to understand um, what the impacts of all the of all this is. I mean, I do know. Um, um, I, I mean, again, I've, I've read the, about the specifically the, the the math and reading being behind. Maybe it'll catch up. Maybe it won't be as big a deal. Um, but I, I I'm more I, I, I'm more skeptical or just not understanding what 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 Mehdi Hassan type people want differently on the COVID response front on, on the on the requirements and restrictions when it was clearly possible to have less 
hard government restrictions and still do better with COVID. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Various states reopen schools at different times, and including a lot of blue states went ahead and reopened schools in the fall of Well, and some schools were open. I mean, in, in the, I looked at the school in the D.C. area, um, the private, the Catholic schools in Virginia were open um, much more than the public schools. And I've seen some analyses suggesting that they didn't have any higher—they didn't have higher rates of, um, of, of, uh, of severe disease and death among people affiliated with the school. So there's, there's a lot of—there are a lot of questions about whether the lockdown policy for schools and but, in general but is correlated my, my with— The point is that there was no lockdown policy. Different states reopened schools at different times, and it wasn't so starkly correlated with— the politics of the people in the state. A lot of blue states— like, It's correlated like, with the politics of the people in charge of the schools. In various states. So this is my—this is, like, I'm really confused about. We're talking singularly about one policy. There wasn't one policy. Various municipalities and communities made decisions on their own. That's supposed to be the whole point of federalism. People made decisions. It looks like, in retrospect, there may or may not have been the same benefits that people anticipated from those decisions, well, depending on how people run the data. That's all we're saying. Sure. And so now, but the— the segment is about Donald Trump arguing that, the, the one, this is an interesting political question, whether or not he is benefited by taking—by by highlighting this interview, uh, this, this intervention, when he, yes. under him, he implemented and advocated for so many of these, quote-unquote, lockdown policies. He has no credibility. He should not have any credibility on this issue. I don't remember someone stealing my house keys and telling me I couldn't leave the house. It's not the same as the Chinese lockdowns. That's why I roll my eyes a little bit at that term. But let's call them stay-at-home, school-closure-style mm -hmm. policies. Well, and our Swedish guest yesterday, Johan Norberg, um, please do check out that video if you missed it. It was really good. Uh, he brought up that Donald Trump, early on in the pandemic, shamed Sweden for its exactly. approach. Donald Trump was exactly. right there with Fauci and the rest exactly. of them in, 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 in being for lockdowns and shaming um, dissenters. So, again, exactly. why so would is, we give this guy another chance well, to do this? And then why is he choosing to, to foreground this issue? This is something where, arguably, DeSantis, any number of other candidates, certainly someone like Vivek Ramaswamy has no record on this issue yeah. and can just say whatever he wants to say now because he wasn't in political office when any of this was going down. Um, you know, why is he wanting to foreground this at this time? And also, when there are plenty of people, including people in blue districts, that had different like policies to reopen earlier than other people in other parts of the country in red districts. Like, one of the things that I really liked that um, uh, the Swedish guest said was that part of the big problem here is that it's been so politicized. It's been so politicized. We can't have a conversation about what did and didn't work, how there are so many different factors involved when you're trying to make even assessments retrospectively about what is useful to us, that we, like, it's, it's impossible. And now Donald Trump is doing more of the same, just arbitrarily picking a different side than he was on at the beginning of this pandemic. And what, it, what it's going to lead to is people making decisions based on politics as opposed, to what's in the, as opposed to what's in the best public health interest. I think that's tragic and disastrous because, yes, there is likely to be another pandemic in the history of humanity. And are we going to be able to actually deal with it? And what are we talking about here? Are we saying that it would have been a good idea to reopen schools prior to the uh, distribution and invention of the vaccine? I mean, again, that's what European nations were able to do that. I think there were a lot of people who had good reason to be like very concerned about that course of action, not because of the likelihood of the uh, mortality of the child, but because of the child as a vector who would bring the disease back home to vulnerable people living at home, and also because of the vulnerability of teachers 
who were in that school environment. And one thing that um, Johan also pointed out was that in Sweden, people tend to live by themselves, be, were able to self-isolate much more easily than a lot of communities in the United States with different cultural traditions of keeping older relatives in the home, having to live together because of our housing issues and economic precarity. And I know there were, I, I spoke to people who had a lot of concern, not for themselves as a relatively young person, but for their um, their, their elder loved ones. So that's literally why I ultimately got vaccinated, because I was, I was self-contained in my own apartment and was willing to play it out for a little bit longer, because I could literally not be exposed to anybody. I podcasted from home. I didn't have to go anywhere. But when it came to visiting an older relative in Cleveland, well, then I made a different kind of decision. And I, I do think that has to be a part of this analysis. What are we actually advocating for here instead of just like punching at clouds and saying we're mad at everybody else who in the, in, in the thick of it might have, may, might have made decisions that in retrospect didn't pan out the way we thought. Hmm. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. A consultant for Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer has been accused of concocting an elaborate scheme, a hilarious scheme, to avoid transparency and oversight requirements and evade Freedom of Information Act requests by using the Greek alphabet instead of English in emails. So this is per new reporting from the Washington Free Beacon. Now, a consultant for Whitmer's Department of Energy emailed one of her senior advisors about a brewing lead crisis in southwestern Michigan. However, the message was sent entirely in Greek. The message made reference to Flint, meaning a general search of the word would not have produced any results. <laughs> it's all Greek to Whitmer. Uh, this is wild. Uh, so I looked at the email. It's, mm -hmm. it's yeah, it's in Greek. It's using Greek characters. Um, so, 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 and this is a story. So, you know, people who want investigative reporters or yeah. just citizens, anyone, you can use the FOIA process, the public records mm -hmm. uh, process in Michigan. Say, I want all of the emails by these officials in this time period that referenced Flint or lead mm -hmm. water crisis, and you wouldn't get a result for this email because it's in Greek. Yeah. So, the again, the attorney in me that did like substantively just document review the whole time that I practiced law is both uh, frustrated by this and kind of charmed by this. I mean, you see a lot of things. I mean, the reason that you have human beings doing document review that are being billed out at stupid amounts of money an hour is because you can put eye your eyes on all kinds of documents, handwritten notes, marginalia, things that aren't captured by the kind of like first pass uh, computer-based read of the document. So you, you, have to, you have to get humans involved. And if I were doing document review and saw a bunch of documents come up that were in a different language, then you have to get pages translated. And you do that all the time. It's an additional expense that it is what you do. This is insidious, however, because this is not a traditional kind of uh, legal context. This is whatever the FOIL, FOIL people's process is to actually recall documents might not be thorough enough to do anything beyond a word search. Now, we would hope that it would be, because we live in a world where there's many languages spoken and many kinds of characters used. And I would hate to think that the FOIA process is so easily thwarted. Um, but the fact that Gretchen Whitmer believed it might be and was, or her team believed it might be and was trying to avoid disclosures this way oh, the, really points to not just a lack of transparency, but how um, hu hubristic 
these uh, legislators are who think they're ab above, frankly, the law or these general kind of public disclosures. I can tell you that the FOIA process is extremely susceptible. I mean, it's different in every state. Municipalities is different. Uh, some states don't have robust um, uh, uh, FOIA laws. Actually, Florida has a very robust set. That's why you get so much zany information about everything going mm. on in Florida, because it's much easier to get documents in Florida mm. than anywhere. It has been for decades. It has nothing to do with the current political situation. Um, but you, I, I've done a number of document requests for stories over the years, and it's, it's, they will find any excuse to mm -hmm. deny you or to not give you what you want, or to give you so much that it's like a, a data file so big you couldn't possibly ever go through it. I, um, the last time I did something like this, uh, also, they charge you. It's expensive. They'll say, mm -hmm. "Oh, you know, you have to charge." It costs like twenty-seven dollars per page. We have to print, and mm -hmm. this is a five thousand pages. So, where's our check for? Like that happens too. There's only one. Yeah, there's only one employee who can do it, and you know, the the, the printing room of the of the department is only open between like three thirty <laughs> and four every third Tuesday, but not if the moon is in <laughs> Jupiter rising or something. Um, I did a. Uh, FOIA request, I made a request of a New York um, human rights department that I thought was giving out guidance that was like way too um, infringy on First Amendment. It was giving guidance on something or other. And uh, I, so I wanted, I tried to FOIA all the emails they'd sent to these companies um, for some First Amendment issue. And uh, it was right before COVID. And then they just denied me over and over again because they're like, yeah, we can't do it because the office is closed. It's COVID. I'm like, but I, these are emails. You don't have to, they're, yeah. they're not in a, in a, in a deposit box where I need you, you just need to send me the emails. And they they, they denied every every couple every couple of weeks during the pandemic. I just get another email from them, so they just still can yeah. sell e send emails. Yeah. Said, um, yeah, our office still isn't open. Sorry. Yeah. So what do you think uh, about Gretchen Whitmer uh, and her Very future lowly. political aspirations? It seems to me, if I reflect on the reasons that she's been in the news of late, it is the fake heist scheme. Uh, she first really came on my radar when she was running in 2018 against a genuinely progressive candidate uh, who was running on a platform of universal health care, uh, state-based universal health care in Michigan. Uh, Gretchen Whitmer, of course, uh, her father uh, was the uh, president and CEO of Blue Cross Blue Shield Michigan from 1988 to 2006, and she fundraised heavily uh, from uh, the private insurance industry. She was seen as the industry's counterpoint to someone who wanted to make health care affordable to everybody living in Michigan. And so I, I have always had a bad uh, taste uh, in my mouth when it comes to her. But it does seem like she's just been making the news for all the wrong reasons, even for people who aren't especially invested in the interests of uh, the left. Yeah. I'm, as you know, not a fan of her whatsoever um, in addition to the the kidnapping plot which um, was was truly a manufactured situation that involved a lot of entrapment in my view um, there's that there was her you know her handling of covid uh, allegations have been made that her nursing home policies were actually quite similar to what um, doomed uh, Cuomo in uh, New York um, I have some, again, I have sort of a personal bias against her for these reasons. I have family in Michigan. I had someone in a nursing home um, who died of COVID very on, early on during the pandemic. Uh, so I'm not a fan of her by any stretch of the imagination. So this is just another 
This is something that people of all political stripes should be able to be frustrated about. This is just a you know basic good government um, violation. But for reasons that don't make a lot of sense to me, Gretchen Whitmer is always kind of mentioned in the in a in a tier of potential possible. Democratic um, presidential candidates someday. Um, I'm not sure why or who is asking for that or who is promoting that, other than just a, a bored mainstream media. Well, for one, I think the gerontocracy is so she's not crazy. An extremely old. That her, yeah, person. the fact that she's That's, like she under sixty yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, makes her a spring chicken and, and a very small. I mean, obviously, she's a Democrats. successful political Democratic political figure in a swing state. Uh, Michigan had a Republican governor for eight years before a very moderate Republican governor uh, be before her. It was, you know, it was a blue state. It had swung back um, in, a, in a red direction. Uh, she, you know, I, a, a lot of the things that make her a moderate are probably things you think are not substantively good uh, She's a corporate policies, Democrat. She's but a, it's tried and true in the in the state. Liner. Yeah, um, she was able to that, um, that bipartisan the blue again. corporate politics. She's right in there. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, she's she's going to get bolstered for those reasons. She's you know attractive. Like she's going to get thrown out there. She's a woman. Democrats mm -hmm. who like to feel like they're good at those kinds of identity issues, Yay. even though they're not. Um, yeah, she has all of those things. But honestly, I struggle to even think about what she. Sounds like yeah. I don't see. It's, it's kind of one of those De DeSantis situations where I feel like we hear a lot about the person, but until DeSantis really started running yeah. for office, there wasn't a lot directly from him in the mainstream context. So uh, this is a terrible story. Yeah. This is a bigger story than Gretchen Whitmer, and it it, it speaks to how much uh, of how our lives are run by our government is shrouded in mystery. And even the mechanisms that are supposed to create transparency and accountability are not only flawed in and of themselves, per your point uh, about FOIA requests generally, but are actively trying to be uh, foiled by uh, the people uh, themselves, by the politicians themselves. So I do want to credit journalists like yourself and people like Lee Fong at The Intercept who do so much good journalism, largely just by being very dogged about their uh, requests for documents that really should be in the public. Yeah, and there are a lot of people who do it much more thoroughly or have more time for it now than I do. And uh, it's, it's demanding and difficult, but so essential, so essential. Absolutely. Um, well, that does it for us for this week on Rising. Amber A.T. and Jessica Burbank will, of course, be back to bring you another special edition of Rising Friday tomorrow. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Have a good one. Bye-bye.